I'm Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast. Welcome. Glad to have you all here. Um, there's a couple things I want to mention before we jump into our, our service, but um, uh, one is just to reemphasize what Pastor Ken just brought up on July 17th. That's next Sunday. We have an Encountering God Night, and we've had a few of these along the way. It's part of our initiative to say, hey, we want to invite and engage the Holy Spirit with our gifts, with who we are, and to let that become something normal that saturates who we are as a church. And so what we've done is these kind of nights where we pray together. There will be some praise music of, uh, there, but we want to put some emphasis on practicing of the gifts. We taught about it. That's what's different about this one than the other ones. We taught about the gifts of the Spirit over the last couple of months, and now we're entering in with a new understanding of what God might have for us. Maybe new that you realize that there is a gift of the Spirit that you had that you just hadn't realized you had. And so for all of those reasons, we want you to come together and let's pray and prayer and practice the gifts together. There is childcare available. You just have to email Jody at Jody at CGNortheast.com. Um, and then along those uh, lines, as, you're, um, as we're praying and thinking about it, this week, our our high school students um, are at Edge Week. It's like a camp that they've got going on. Um, it's been going on for years and years. Our group has been participating in it for years and years. What I want to do is invite you to pray for everyone who's going to be on that trip. Just be there as intercessors, even if you can't be there in spirit, and ask God to strengthen Pastor uh, Sam as he is there and probably having almost no sleep if you've ever been a part of one of those things, but also having a great time pouring into students during that time. So please be praying for that. Um, and then also, before we move forward, I just want to say a public thanks to, to um, Pastor James Ware for bringing the word last Sunday. Just celebrate him. I know it's not here right now, but just as a public recognition, having the ability to check out what he was, um, you know, what he was teaching and what he brought, it was just like someone had been a part of Common Ground for the last few weeks. He just took the momentum of what we've been talking about in James, poured it right into it. And then that last bit that he talked about Frederick Douglass on the 150-year um, anniversary of, of his statement. It was just a powerful, powerful sermon. If you missed it, go back and check it out. So just a, a special thanks uh, to James Weir for all that he did in preparation and bringing it to, um, to life here while uh, some of us were, were out for that time. Um, I also wanted to kind of do a quick little mention of some, some cultural moments that we're dealing with that we haven't really had a chance to spend some time on. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time, but I do want to stop and just pray. Um, there's obviously some upheaval in Akron, Ohio, that I know a lot of you are, are monitoring and taking note of. Police officers um, killed Jalen Walker, 25-year-old man. Uh, there was a foot chase that also turned into... Um, uh, you know, a, a, ch a chase, a traffic chase after, um, or a car chase after a traffic stop. And so um, just want to pray that God would be in and around all that's going on there, that his um, justice would be seen and had in the midst of those things. Um, and uh, there may be some things that God is calling you to do as a part of um, activating your faith um, in, in response to that. And so be prayerful, be prayerful for the, the families involved, but we want to see um, in our time, in our day, as we have um, taken on this justice and reconciliation uh, as, as something that is a main part of who we are and the values of Common Ground Northeast, we want to be prayerful and mindful about that and ask Jesus where he might have you enter into that. In Chicago, there was a shooting at the Highland Park, 4th of July Parade, where there was a man captured and charged for seven counts of murder. Uh, man, I don't know. I know I had a friend who said, hey, pastors, as a former pastor myself, I want you to come today um, not assuming that everyone's here to celebrate on the 4th of July. And he referenced the Frederick Douglass uh, stuff and also this, um, uh, some of the things that had been going on. And so what I want to do is note that many were mourning on uh, the weekend of 4th of July. 
and throughout the last few weeks for the two reasons mentioned and some more that I'm about to mention. Um, man, this is just, it's a time for us to be in prayer, but also to take action and ask God where he would have us step in. There's mounting pressure here in our own city, and I'm going to talk about this at the end. If you weren't aware, Herman Whitfield III, I've mentioned him, I've posted on my private accounts, um, but Herman Whitfield III was a man who um, had some mental health issues. He had an episode, and his mom called the ambulance, said, I need some help. He's having some problems. And instead of an ambulance, um, some police officers showed up. Now, the heartbreaking part is that at the moment that they entered, uh, knocked on the door, and she opened, she said, oh, no, you're not going to kill him, are you? And they said, no, ma'am, we're not going to kill him. And a few hours later, Herman was no longer alive. And so what I want to do is um, there are some things that are, have been lacking transparency in that and just call us to, uh, as a congregation, to be mindful of what's going on. Pray. There's some petitions running around that I'm going to challenge you to engage in, um, peaceful protests that are taking place um, in the midst of that. But this is something that's happening in our, in our own backyard. I want to address, and, I, and this is not a fullness of this by any means, um, but there's definitely been some silence on our end about the Roe v. Wade decision. It's created lots of turmoil, incredibly nuanced and charged, emotionally charged conversation with passionate responses coming into my emails and conversations I've had on both sides of how the church should interact with this. And so we have this, this issue of women's rights and the rights of the unborn at odds seemingly against each other. We have the question posed of medically unviable pregnancies. Right? We have the current level of just general support for women or lack thereof in our culture um, and, and for those who are engaging in what is often a crisis during an unwanted pregnancy. The debate of how or when the church should legally step in to ask the government to uphold convictions one way or the other, this is not just an easy yes or no decision. All right? Do you see the variables at play right here? And so as a church called Common Ground and who wants to be that as a value, what I want to do is call us to not just be in prayer, but be listeners of each other. Walk in the, the tension of the middle of that, that there's more here than we can cover, you know, in this moment. And, and I think that us as elders and leadership, we want to put out some kind of um, statement that covers some of these issues a little bit more full. But, but what I want you to know is we're aware of that you're walking in with the angst of this issue in this moment inside of our culture right now. You add to that the ongoing Russian-Ukraine war is intensifying, and we're still in a pandemic, if you didn't forget about that. Um, so here is a time I want to just stop and pray before we do anything else today, and we're going to cover James, we're going to move forward in that today, um, but can we just stop and understand that we're in tension, some of us are hurting, some of us are angry, some of us are in a, a, a felt sense of unknown, I just don't know what to do. I want to bring that before God this morning. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. So, Father, we come before you often as the Psalms do, where I don't even know what's in my heart sometimes. I don't even know what to pray, and, and I'm thankful that your Holy Spirit comes in, and maybe those with the gift of that utterance would step in and intercede on behalf of whatever's going on, Lord, but sometimes things feel so complicated, I don't even know where to move forward. Sometimes they seem clear, and sometimes it seems clear in opposition to me for those who disagree, and, and it's hard always to know what we're supposed to pray, God, so just, Spirit, intercede on behalf. I want whatever you want in this moment to happen. In all of these situations, God, send justice where justice is meant to be. Send freedom where freedom is meant to be. Send uh, encouragement where that's supposed to be. Send conviction where that's supposed to be. And Father, I want our faith to be empowered 
by deeds, which is what James is going to spur us on today. Energize us. Allow us to have meaningful actions to the convictions you have given us, Lord. Of God, right now, we just pour our hearts out before you. And echo those words, you are worthy of it all. Through all of these things, God, we lift you up in praise. You are the solution. But may that solution work itself into hands and feet, into actions based on the people who represent you here on this earth. We lift this up right now in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, again, um, James Aware did such a great job this last Sunday. I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of what he created this last Sunday. As you look towards today's text, you're going to notice that there's a trend inside of what Uncle James, as I deemed him, that's the James of the scriptures, right? He's coming to us with some wisdom that sometimes we don't always want to hear or ingest. And what I'm asking you to do is to think, maybe James has something good to say today that we need to hear. And so if you've been reading or tracking with this throughout the scriptures, reading along in the book of James, so if you're on vacation, out of vacation, just pick it up. It's a short book. Keep reading through the book. We see that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is trying to get us to back up our words, our promises, the things that we do, uh, sorry, the things that we say to be consistent with our actions and the things that we do. And so today's teaching is an extension of a previous lesson. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. And of that word of God, what he's going to do is now build us into doing this in a little bit higher level, in an elevated stakes, because there's a little bit more at stake than maybe what we considered before. This is what I mean. If I say that I believe something like this, Eating too much candy every day is bad for my health. But then my kids see me bust out a Snickers bar and, 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 and slice it up into nice little pieces, put a side of jelly beans, and you know it's the Starburst jelly beans, right? Those are the good ones. And then I wash it all down with a Coke. You know who the first person in my household is that's going to call me out on that? All four of my children. <laughs> well, you don't even, what do you, what do you mean that, that that's bad for you. Look at what you're doing. You don't even believe what you're trying to teach us. You can't believe this, right? The effect isn't just a lack of health in my own body. My trust that I've been building with my kids, they see a hypocrite. So my trust is lowered. I'm maybe lying to myself or even avoiding what I know to be true for one reason or another, but what I am still do, what I'm doing is not what I have just said. It's inconsistent. And so you want to change scenes to a little bit higher stake. If I happen to be hanging out in an apartment complex and uh, as I'm talking to the management inside of this apartment complex, someone walks in and says, I think there's something wrong outside. I need your help. And everyone's just kind of stunned. What do you mean? Well, there's someone who needs help in the pool right outside here. Oh, interesting. So I look and take a peek out the window. There's a man face down in the pool, not moving. So it's the shoes off, it's the cell phone on the ground. I run out there, jump into the pool. This is a very large man, 350 pounds. I'm having a hard time trying to get him to roll over. I finally get him, he's kind of coming to. I pull him up as hard as I can to the steps, just in time for him to look at me and be like, what are you doing, man? Why are you touching me, bro? Trying to save your life. And then I look up in the balcony with all the apartment complex around me, and there is about 20, 30, maybe 40 people staring at the man face down inside of the pool. 
So, so we all acknowledge that guy needs help. The lady who ran in, that guy needs help. All of us sitting in this office are like, that guy needs help. Now, I'm going to say I got to be the hero in this moment. I have also been the bystander just staring at something going, was, was happening in front of me. There's actually a term for this. It's so common. Most of us have done this before. At one point or another, it's called the bystander effect. We've all likely been guilty. There's something that works against our conscious understanding that something needs to happen. They need help. They need someone to intervene on their current situation. But for some reason, we don't want to get involved, especially when there are other people present. Have you seen it happen? We'll pass on by. We'll even watch without helping. Why do we do this? Sometimes we feel it's just not our problem. Sometimes we even feel like you got yourself into this. You see a car wreck, and you're like, man, I saw you driving two miles back like an idiot. I'm not even going to stop for you now. You might panic and paralyze. I think that's probably what happened in this situation. You might fear that you'll do something wrong or you'll get involved and not know what to do to help whoever's in trouble in this situation. You might assume that someone else is going to take action. There's actually a term for this, the diffusion of responsibility. The more people are around you, the more likely you feel like it's not my responsibility. Surely somebody else is going to step in on this situation. And so you just step out of it. You think they don't deserve your help. You don't know. Uh, 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 if, if you've never heard this, this is one of the most common embarrassment. I'm embarrassed that I might jump into action and look like the person who overreacted because they actually don't need as much help. Or they were just joking, and they're like, oh, no, I wasn't really choking. Sorry, man, that was just, and ha-ha, you're the idiot in the room. Embarrassment is one of the most common reasons people just opt out of a situation like this. Now, maybe you've identified, maybe you've seen it happen, maybe you can know right now I've done that before in my life. And while we all believe that someone might need help, our actions betray us. And sociologists have identified there's there's a gap between the knowledge that we have and our actions, even when it could mean life or death for another person. James gets this. He's going to use the same principle for us to understand what's happening inside of the life of, of some people who are followers of Jesus, inside of a faith walk. But once again, he's going to raise the stakes even higher than what we've covered. So I want to ask you, open your Bibles to James 2. We'll have the words up there. But if you have a Bible, I do encourage you, James 2, we're going to start in verse 14. It says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Now, full stop, we're one verse in, and what I need you to see is before we get to application, before we get to breaking this down, what he just did was surface a huge tension revolving around faith and deeds and salvation inside of the walk of a Christian. So this is what I mean by the stakes being raised up. We've seen, uh, you know, my integrity might be at stake if it's just candy. Someone's life might be at stake if I'm unwilling to jump in and get involved, but what he's saying is candy. Can such a faith save them that there's salvation involved in this? And so there's this common debate among theological circles. And we are common ground, Northeast Christian Church. So I want to give you a couple of polls at each end. And I'm going to invite you to, to, to rest and to engage and to struggle with the middle. Okay? 
So what you typically have inside of this kind of salvation issue is that you have uh, what is called often lordship salvation. It emphasizes the works on what you do um, and, and all of the things that might be evidence of your salvation. And they will say something along the lines of this. If you have not let Jesus become Lord of your life, then you're probably not saved. So, so think of some of the problems that might accompany that. How, how, how much needs to change? Who gets to determine the amount of change that needs to take place inside of my life? What level of surrender is required before you can adequately say, I've made Jesus the Lord of my life? Who determines it? Who judges the heart or the fruitfulness? And maybe this, maybe change has happened and you just can't see it. But it's all in my heart. In fact, maybe it even comes down to you not understanding what they're juggling in the circumstances in their life, let alone we like to elevate certain sins over others. But now jump over to this end, all right, and they have what's called free grace salvation. It emphasizes the grace as the name tells you, meaning salvation is free. It is free, but so free, in fact, salvation is a line called belief. Once you stepped across that, it's done. Nothing else has to change in your life. It's all over, right? Salvation by grace through faith. As long as you've crossed it, you've saved, you're saved and no life change has to occur. No evidence of that salvation. Regardless of your actions, regardless of your behavior, regardless of your fruitfulness or your lack of those things. Now, what's the problem we're going to see there? I mean, don't we have to show some fruit? Like a little bit. Maybe, maybe after all, we, we, we don't want to promote hypocrisy, right? So we want to, what we say, we want to follow through with. Paul said, shall we sin that grace may abound? Surely not. Besides, again, on this side, who's responsible for the amount of fruitfulness? Who gets to judge how much is fruitful, what is not? How much of it is maybe visible or not visible in front of somebody? Do you catch how these debates can kind of go back and forth? Well, yeah, but you got this and this, and I've got a verse to support that. Well, over here, I'm going to quote some of these verses verses and throw them at you. And what I want you to see in the midst of this, my friends, either extreme is legalism. Either extreme on either end is a different form of legalism because what it wants to do is to pull you out of the tension of dynamic faith and statically put you in a restful point where you don't have to actually deal with the nuance of that. You relax the tension on one side, so I don't want to think about my sin. I just want to do whatever I want. Free grace me, please. And on the other side, we're going to ratchet up the rules so I can control your behavior so that even if you look like you're following Jesus and he's the Lord of your life, you may have your heart so far from him no one can tell. So I'm going to control your behavior over here. I'm going to completely release it over here. Both extremes are a trap. And so what I want to do is invite you into the dynamic tension in between that wrestles with both. And my guess is you want me to give you a definition and I can't. It's a wrestling all right? I want to move on from this, but this is, and, and keep in mind, this is a 21st century conversation that we have. This wasn't all that different. This wasn't a struggle inside of the, the time that it was written, and they just kind of got all of this. But I do want to fill in one gap in terms of what this word deeds means. The Greek word, and I don't typically throw out Greek words, deeds and works, um, different translations, deeds or works, is ergon, which is where we get our word for energy. There's a guy, he's, his name is Skip Moen, he's a Greek scholar, and I'm going to just quote him really quickly. There are other words that James could have used to give us a clue as to the mean, uh, sorry, 
could have used, so this gives us a clue as to the meaning James intended to convey. James uses a word for energy or active zeal. This is the word that John uses over and over to describe miracles and signs in other parts of Scripture. This is what the New Testament says is the action that follows submission to God. It's energized. So here's what I want you to know. Yes, salvation comes by grace alone. But yes, salvation will also be energized through a fruitful behavior, obedience, and good deeds, which at sometimes might be present even when I can't see it observing your life. And that's the best I've got for you. One pastor said this, the kind of faith which alone saves us, that is authentic faith, will always be visible in our lives. Yes, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It will always lead to life change. Amen but I may not always see it. And so our call is to encourage each other, hold each other accountable, push us into an authentic faith. It's like a healthy fruit tree, right? To take it down to just a simple analogy. If it's healthy, it's going to produce fruit. And so life changed that looks, a life will change and it will look more and more like the life of Jesus in increasing measure. Amen. As we grow older and older and learn more about the scriptures and put it into action. Okay. I'm trying to bring a little bit of clarity to a 21st century um, uh, issue that we deal with all the time, but what I think James is talking about, let's come back to this, what James is talking about, he isn't talking about saving faith at all here, I don't think. As he established at the very beginning, he's talking to believers. And so what I think he's actually trying to do is assume they have saving faith, but they've embraced habits that obstruct their faith. They've embraced, one or, for one or more reasons, something that goes on to, uh, uh, that, that, that forces their faith or, or causes their faith not to work itself out to, into um, uh, practical ways. And so he's going to give us some examples here. Before he does, he's going to surface about three kinds of faith that I think he tries to describe here. Let's see if you can catch them, and I'm going to try and point them out as we get there. So let me put it together. I'm going to start in 14 again, and we'll move on. Um, through 17. So what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has not energized it, all right, I want to use that phrase, has no deeds, can such faith save them? And James goes on, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied or energized by action, it's bad. Is that what it said? It's not a good look for everyone. It doesn't look good for Jesus or the church. It's sick. No, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. If you didn't catch it, James is in the habit of using some pretty strong rhetoric. It's going to keep happening through the rest of this. So, so one kind of faith you might have is, uh, uh, that, that doesn't put deeds on display is a dead faith, meaning you've got all the words right, but you don't have any works to back it up. So you got the words, you got the things to say, you have the, I'll pray for you, but it has no substance on the other side, and maybe you don't even pray. I've been guilty of that before. 
In this kind of faith, it's rendered useless. It has no earthly good for anyone else around you who might be in need because it lacks the energy to animate it into a living, breathing faith. And so this example puts you right in the shoes, as we're reading it, of the person who has the power, who has the means, and doesn't do it. They can provide clothes daily for themselves and possibly others. And my guess is most of us are in a position where we can provide for most of our needs on a regular basis, but I want to just do a quick little perspective shift and invite you into the shoes of the person who isn't in that position. What happens if you put, your shoes in the per, in, put yourself in the shoes of the one in need, the one who's living at the mercy of another person who has the ability to decide, am I going to get you clothes or food, or am I going to tell you, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed? It's almost impossible for us to imagine, unless you've been there before. If you've never been there, you start to think, well, I mean, if I don't have my needs met here, if I come to the end of my means, like, I'll figure something out. I'll, I'll, make it, I'll make it happen, or I'll go talk to a friend on the other side of town, a family member. You see, there's this wealth that goes beyond just the resources we have. You also have network resources. So you may not realize it, but you have 15, 20 houses just in this congregation that if you had to, you could call them up and say, I need a place to stay, and they would open up their doors to you. That is a kind of wealth that we might have at our disposal. But if you are resource poor, if you are network poor, here's your hope that somebody might change their go in peace, keep warm and well fed to I'm going to go get you some food and clothes right now. Your only hope is that somebody might do that and you never know when that might happen. You have no clue and until then you are hungry, you are cold with no end in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel, just a hope, no assurance that somebody just might say, instead of go in peace, keep warm and well fed, let me handle this. Now, God doesn't like people to live like that. So he sent a remedy. He took his people of faith, the community of believers who follow him, those who call themselves followers, and he breathed an energizing life into their faith, into their salvation, so that it could work itself out into a live useful, contagious, dynamic faith. Friends, don't let your faith be dead. Now, I love this next move that James makes. It's a classic one. I think you're going to like it too. Verse 18, but someone, who is this someone? But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Did you catch what just happened? James just wrote into his own letter a naysayer that doesn't exist, a hypothetical heckler in the audience that might challenge what he's saying. That's exactly what he did, and he starts to address this person. Why do you think he knows this question could come up? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, he, it's just so common. He's given this argument before. Maybe he's taught this lesson before, and he knows the kinds of statements that tend to come up, and people want to, uh, you know, push back on what he said. And so he just says, I- I'm going to give you the argument right now, and I'm going to address that before we even get there. Or he knows the people he's writing to so well that he has a rebuttal. He knows the kind of rebuttal they're going to make. 
He's been around them. He's hung out with them. Many commentators, and I love this, I I, I think think this second one is true, but it's even more passive-aggressive than what I'm giving it credit for. It's like he's doing everything. He has a person in mind. Everything he can not to be like, Bob, you need to know that you have to stop separating your faith from your deeds. But he doesn't name the person. He just says, This tactic, you have faith, I have deeds. Now, it seems innocent enough, right? But catch that they created a premeditated plan to passively reject the doing. I've got a way that I can theologically figure out how I'm going to get around this. I'm going to compartmentalize it. There's faith over here. There's deeds over here. You're a deeds person. I'm a faith person. You go do your deeds, things over here. I'm going to delegate that out to you so that that's not my responsibility. Now, remember, what did the sociologists call this with the bystander effect? The diffusion of responsibility. We still do this today. So James isn't worried. He knows. He anticipates. He said, hey, here's the rebuttal. Let me, I've got an answer. Again, it's sharp. Are you ready for it? This is what James says. Show me your faith without deeds. Real quick, catch the irony. If you don't have deeds, is there anything to show? Show me. Oh, that's right. You don't show anything. Oh, oh. (laughs) What? James, man. Uncle James coming at us. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So the first type of faith he describes is dead faith. And the second kind that James can describe is demonic faith. Ah, that's rough, man. I mean, I told you he's going to be sharp and he's going to continue us through the end. We're going to finish out here pretty quick. Have you ever thought about that, though? That demons have a kind of faith. Have you considered that there's a bunch of orthodox, doctrinally understood demons Running around, they have all the knowledge in the world, but they don't do anything with it. Demons know everything they can know about God. Demons know who God is, all of his attributes. They don't have to be reminded ever since they've been alive for much longer than humanity. They've known that he is the Lord who is worthy of all praise, yet they deny and reject God, and they're condemned for it. Ooh. So demonic faith is characterized by knowing the right things or having correct doctrine, knowing exactly how to apply it and rejecting it anyways, denying to do the deeds of the faith that's required of you. So we have dead faith and we have demonic faith. Now I'm going to come through this last part pretty quickly. James is going to give us some examples, but his intensity continues, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? All right, let's give you some examples. Was not your father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So James digs into the history of God's people that he's talking to. He wants them to know and reveal to them that the energized faith of the revered father Abraham 
who put his trust on display through his actions and deeds was made righteous because he brought these two things together. There was a dynamic faith. It's not a new idea. This is not, uh, it's, it, it has been exactly what the scriptures have told you since Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, because again, they didn't have the New Testament at this moment. This is what we've seen from the Jewish faith. This is the natural overflow of a faithful person that has come deep from within our heritage. But then he doesn't stop there. This is the last part. Listen to this. Verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Now, if the first part cut a little deep, This is James like pouring a little bit of salt in there. It's going to sting a little bit more because he wants to make sure that the recipients of the letter are agitated enough that they move out of their complacency. He wants them, he's, he's, he's employing jealousy to make them move into action and not stay still because James points out that, hey, by the way, it was a woman, not a man, in a male driven society. Oh, it was, it was a pagan, not a follower of Yahweh, who did what was right in this situation. It was a prostitute, not a priest, who has displayed greater faith than those in your congregation who have chosen to dismiss their deeds. I mean, this is a closed case, shut down the argument. Uncle James is on fire right now. So here's my question for us as we close. Have we, have we been agitated enough by James in this text today to do something with what God has entrusted us with? What knowledge you have, you are responsible for. What understanding you have doctrinally, you are responsible for. The things that we have, not for salvation, but it will come out as an overflow. And if it's just not visible, this is my call to make it visible. What kind of faith have you been putting on display? And so I want to ask one question before we get to these last little bits. If you don't have saving faith, maybe as we have talked, it has surfaced in your mind, I don't know if I know Jesus. That very first kind of faith that we mentioned, what I want to do is give you an opportunity, please, an invitation this day to ask yourself, what's holding you back? Come talk to me. Come talk to one of our elders, one of the leaders. Please talk to us. If you want to know more about saving faith and what it means to become a follower of Jesus, don't let today pass without coming and talking to one of us or a trusted friend that you know that can help answer questions and walk you through what it might mean to become a follower of Jesus. But if you already know God, have you been acting in a dead faith? You've got the words and no deeds. Have you been acting in a demonic faith where you have all the knowledge and doctrine right, but you have no deeds? And I want to invite us all into the dynamic place that applies deeds and fruitfulness and godly productivity to create a synergy inside of their faith that is dynamic and just teeming, overflowing with life. I want to give you one clear example that we've mentioned already. Regarding uh, Herman Whitfield III that I mentioned earlier, Faith Indiana, it's an interfaith group, so don't be surprised if it's not necessarily Christian. Faith Indiana has an open petition for the release of the camera footage that has been withheld for Herman Whitfield. 
Now, we know something's not quite right with this and that there's just some accountability that needs to be uh, uh, made aware. I want to encourage you all to sign it. And we could circulate that, but if you just look up Faith Indiana Herman Whitfield, you'll find it out there. Again, this is in our own backyard, something that's taken place in our, in our own midst um, that calls for some accountability right now. I want you to take a look at the events and the things going on around us, some that we've named today, some that I haven't, some that I don't even know of because they're happening in your neighborhoods, in your schools where kids are not able to pay for lunches uh, or, sorry, supplies or, or other things that are taking place in the midst of your own schools. And I want you to see those things and not do nothing but act on being an answer to those problems that arise inside of the places around you. We have this obligation that we've talked to over and over about the quartet of the vulnerable in our city. It's a theme from the scriptures from beginning to end that we would see to it that orphans and widows and immigrants, refugees and the poor are taken care of. And so allow your faith to have become energized by the deeds so that your time, your talent, and your treasure become earthly good to others around us. This is dynamic faith. And if I could take a cue from James, many times in our day, those who don't believe in Christ are leading the charge before the church to answer issues of poverty, to answer issues of homelessness, to answer issues of inequity. I was, in fact, watching a video, my son, about a waste management, like a little mini doc on YouTube. That sounds really weird that we'd be watching that, but if you know our family, it's actually an everyday occurrence, all right? And the commercial was talking about all the things that they were doing to create equity for women who have not been taken seriously inside of the garbage industry to make sure that pay equality takes place across the board, to make sure that there are opportunities for all races, creeds, backgrounds, and colors. And I thought to myself, even the garbage man cares about this. And so should we. So let us be, even if it's only by stirring of jealousy, be moved into action. Do not let the world care for orphans, widows, refugees, and the poor better than we do. Amen? Pray with me. So Lord, thank you so much um, for saving faith. God, I thank you that you have died to pay a cost and a price so that we don't have to pay for it, God. But now we get to energize it and create a dynamic, living, breathing entity out of the things that you have entrusted us with, out of the knowledge you have entrusted us with, out of the words you have spoken over us, out of the commands you have given us. They can become tangible things in the midst of our communities right now. And so, Father, thank you for those who are in the room who are a part of, of ministries that help with refugees, that help with poverty. God, I know there's multiple people in our congregation that we gave a, a chunk of money to the efforts in the Ukraine, God. And I am thankful that we have a church that does often put their uh, deeds integrated with their faith. But, God, let's see it happen even more. And so, Father, our simple prayer is this, echoing the Lord's prayer. Dynamic faith is the will of Jesus being done. Dynamic faith is the kingdom come. Dynamic faith is heaven being brought to earth through the ambassadors of God who rule and reign throughout the world until he returns. So, Father, until you return, may we be the, those who usher the kingdom of heaven here in Indianapolis, as it was meant to be 
the way you created it in heaven. We ask for this right now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.